Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. I'm Amir Malikpour. And we are discussing The Invisibles, the Deluxe Edition, Volume 1, by Grant Morrison and Friends, reprinting Invisibles 1 through 12, including a bonus story. Ah, I don't think you like these. Uh, hey, we haven't talked about it. I will say the first nine issues I was not a big fan of. And I think they, they got successively better. Issue 10, 11, and 12 were probably my favorites of this run. And I think it has a lot to do where perhaps, um, I don't know, should I explain it or should we get into it? or Let's start with why you didn't like the first um, I had a hard time. issues. I had a hard time with the um, with the art initially. I think, like again, like I think we've talked about it. Or we actually haven't. We we should probably preface this. We recorded this podcast last week, and then we forgot to record it. So that's all right. I may keep saying we've talked about it already, which we haven't really. If you're listening to this for the first time, um, I just had a little bit of a hard time with the art. And I did have a hard time with, um, I don't know, it just felt so morbid, you know, like a morbid world. And then furthermore, I felt like if I read British comics or stories, I see the same type of like anti-establishment, you know, um, I've heard it, you know, I think Alan Moore talks about, let's say, it feels like, I feel like if you're from the United Kingdom or in that area, there's always this idea of like, oh, I hate our rulers. Let's get rid of our rulers, you know, that kind of a thing, which in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm not a, I don't worship um, bad people, but but it, it's basically that. And I also had a hard time with Marquise de Sade, which, you know, um, his including, him being included as part of the Invisibles because I don't necessarily think he's a good guy or maybe, a, I don't know. So Yeah, we can dig into that. This really feels like a very British comic, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And I think, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of further reading of it and there were some parts that were uh, censored or not or edited out, which I agree with. Some of the aspects of like some of the, you know, sexual violence stuff. Um, or sexual abuse things that happened in some of the parts of the story, which I agree with the editors for the first time. Like I agree with like not the writer or the editor. I agree with them uh -huh. not included in there. Uh, kudos to Karen Berger. I don't know if she's the one who did it, but um, but uh, I don't know. I just felt like it's a the first nine issues, as probably goes because he's just getting started learning how to, you know, what to formulate within these stories um we're not we're not great uh, i think again we've talked about this before you mentioned it before issue number 12 is it or is it 11 i think sorry 12 is the one with the soldier 11 is the one with the guy who's caring for that strange creature i mean those are the two best the two best issues are 11 and 12 and my favorite is number 12 the with best a, with best a... man fall so let's let's start with the ones we didn't like because uh and we should kind of go more or less sequentially through it. For okay. me, the biggest problem was that it feels so very British, like you were saying. And, you know, we see our, our, our main character, Dane, 
And he, when we first meet him, he's throwing the Molotov cocktail through the window of his school. Mm-hmm. And he's wearing a football jersey, soccer jersey. Mm-hmm. And it clearly is meant to mean something, right? If we're a British person reading this in 1989 or whatever, um, mm-hmm. we're getting the, the deeper meaning behind this. And there's a lot of talk in there about, I wish I could, I wish I could blow up Liverpool, uh, about really this post-Thatcherite era of England or late Thatcher era of England, where everything feels like it's collapsing to the British people. And it all feels very kind of time and place-based. So I felt alienated from that. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, it's always interesting to, to get a feel for a different culture or a different place, a different you know, way of looking at things, right? I mean, one of the reasons I like watching you know, a James Bond movie is because I feel like I can travel to other places in the world. But I just felt like I never could really empathize with Dane. Maybe a little bit later on when we get a little bit more of his backstory. But in the beginning part, I, he's just a person I don't like. I just hate that effort. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, here's the funny thing. Like, um, the Britishness is like, yeah, we get it. You're pissed off at Thatcher. Yeah, we get it. Except 30 years later or 50 or 40 years later, you still vote in, you know. <laughs> to brexit and like you know do the other stupid stuff so it's like we get it you hate her but stop talking all right yeah a million times yeah do you think that if like there's been a lot britain like about living in the shadow of trump nowadays i bet Mm. the same our our fiction would read really dated 30 years from now actually like thinking about like the stuff that came out post 9-11 as a, you know, already feels dated to us in, in oh, a lot yeah. of ways. I mean, 9-11 is 20 years ago. Jesus. So yeah, this uh, feels dated. It feels dated in, a, yeah. in another way too, because the coloring obviously is... I uh, mean, the art is hard. Yeah, the coloring. The art is, at some points, Jill Thompson's art is magnificent. And at some points, you could tell she was rushed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh. Yeah, we agree we didn't I like mean, yeah. Steve Yeoh's work. Yeah, and you know he's he was good with Morrison on Zenith because it, his style fit that that kind of story. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree with you about Thompson. Yeah, and it's uh, it was it was okay. I mean, I think it started out okay. I had a problem with a lot of the sexual violence stuff, which again, I, I sound like a prude or whatever, but I just had a lot of problem with throughout like some of the stuff that they talked about. I'm glad they censored some of the things that they were going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is like, it's kind of disturbing because the arts did not, maybe maybe that's what it's supposed to be like, but just kind of just, yeah, it wasn't, um, I didn't enjoy the coloring either. Yeah, it's just vertigo coloring, right? And the, the art feels kind of flat, right? And the yellow yeah. issues especially. And yeah, maybe this is intentional. Maybe it's meant to kind of flatten the affect of the story. Mm-hmm. And make us feel like it's semi unreal. Yeah. But I mean, it's the same colorist, I think, in the subsequent, like the, again, I, I want to jump to 11 and 12. I think, you know, the art by John Ridgway is great. Um, um, and the colorist, I believe it's the same guy, the same person. Yeah, and that they are, yes, Daniel Vozo. And the Steve Barkhouse art on issue 12, you know, it's just as loose and almost co- comic booky, so to speak, 
as yeah. uh, the earlier issues, but it works in a different way. It almost yeah, works better yeah. because it's a little bit more kind of cartoonish. Mm -hmm. I like that one. That's, that's, that's my favorite issue. And I think, yeah, the art's not really that much different. It is cartoon, more cartoony than Steve Ewell. Mm -hmm. it's a, it kind of reminds me a little bit more, um, it, at points I was reminded, I, I see, um, and maybe it's the vertigo coloring. It's uh, by Preacher. I get reminded by Preacher art uh -huh. and on the Park House one. Yeah. Well, Dylan is clearly one of the better artists to come out of England at that yeah. time, right? The storytelling skills especially are so sharp. Mm -hmm. Maybe that part of it too is that like over and over again, it feels like uh, it's like Yol chooses the most obvious way of telling scenes. He doesn't really bring the story alive mm -hmm. in the way the other two artists do. And Thompson, it's early Joel Thompson, right? She's, I think she's still getting into the swing of her great talent because I think she's very talented now. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, she's amazing. Now that she's really kind of thriving. Um, so we've talked a lot about the art, but um, so Dane goes and lives down and out in heaven and hell as the story is told. He's got this mentor who's half crazy. Um, did you like that character too? Um, I thought Tom? it was okay. When I first read it, I thought it was fine. I thought it was interesting to have like a homeless. And like I said, I think, again, like I, I forget we've already talked about this, but one of the things about Invisibles is that I actually have all of the trades except the first trade paperback, which I ended up buying. Uh, for our discussion. And I never got past the first issue for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. It's like, I didn't like the art. I didn't like the Britishness, or at least the, not unoriginal, but you know, but maybe it's because I've read since then, you know, but I've heard a lot of these type, same type of things in like British comics from the same era or even literature from the same era. But, um, but yeah, uh, I like the old homeless guy. It was interesting. I, what was funny about it is um, I did do a further reading, and, and this is not my idea, but someone compared the story to, uh, at least their story, to Shazam. Where, oh, yeah. yeah. Dental wandering through the train tunnels. Yes, because he ends up dying, right? He ends up leaving, like not showing up. At least we don't know. I don't know if he's going to show up again, but, but he teaches him all he can teach him, and then he leaves, and now... Now Jack Frost or Dane is part of the Invisibles, mm -hmm. or like Yoda. You know, he's like the Yoda. He's like, you know, Shazam. He's uh, kind of the tour guide into the new world. Yeah, it's also a British trope. I mean, the most famous example of that is Constantine comes in and mentors Swamp Thing in the oh, earlier okay. issues when he's growing back. But you see this again and again where the wise man. Who knows the secrets comes in and mentors the child who doesn't understand everything mm -hmm. so yeah. uh i think my biggest frustration with the first few issues is that they feel kind of tropey mm -hmm. yeah it is tropey i mean like it's a lot of like telling and not showing in in that first kind of section I, I, I suppose we need to have that journey with them if you yeah. compare it to like the first episode of an hbo series or something this is when the guy, you know, finds the secret and gets led to, to the actual truth. It just feels kind of not elegant to me. Mm -hmm. 
it's funny like even the 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 bit with yoda you know when he's being when uh when dane is being chased by the police officer and mad tom has him in the alleyway and he kind of waves his hand to the police officer and the police officer does officer doesn't see him it's yeah. it feels so much like obi-wan kenobi right yeah yeah one other thing, um, again, this is like, we should talk about the stuff we like because it, it gets better. And I think <laughs> in the future, once we get past issue 12, it'll be fun. Although I'm a little bit worried because I, I, I peeked a little ahead and I think it's more the same with the first nine issues, but we'll see. Um, here's another pet peeve I had or whatever, it was an issue I had was, um, so I read that, you know, I bought the, I have this trade paper for the second trade paperback, which starts on issue number seven okay. and they have a synopsis and it says synopsis of jack frost it says the raw recruits still learning what the invisibles are all about yet he may be the most powerful force on either side do we were we told he's this is just well he's not nobody told us he's the most powerful and he's all like some call this former street punk the future buddha but he'd rather you call him dane who called him buddha did you hear anybody call him buddha no there's nothing there's nothing at all in the first issues especially about that and there again like this is harry potter this is neo mm -hmm. this is luke skywalker yeah and i suppose you could say that's the archetype right it it's the you know the classic hero's journey sort of thing but doesn't it feel kind of repetitious well it is rep of course the tropes are annoying but here's the storytelling problem that i had this is something that i actually heard from other comic writers i'm not a writer or an artist but like cartoonist kfix mentioned this in the 90s the image comics folks you would like they would have all these interviews about backstories of their character and then once you start reading the comic none of that is in the comic the comic is just them doing stupid stuff right and so yet they have they're like yeah you know this guy is like like for example in this case this guy is the next future buddha and he's the powerful on either side everyone's trying to recruit him it's like I didn't see that anywhere in the comic. Like, why are you, you know, it's just kind of an annoying. Well, that's a great insight. We're because we're, yeah, it does feel like we're a little bit being told and not being shown that he's this yeah. amazing person. Yeah, he's just a brat. He's just a brat. But I mean, he should be in jail. Well, I guess that's the main thing, right? Like, I find it really hard to like someone who's throwing Molotov cocktails at his school, getting in arguments with his teachers, really only escapes going into juvenile detention because of a technicality in British law, mm -hmm. and yeah. then basically runs away from it, escapes from it through a very yeah. strange issue also. But I think if, if we have more issues like number 12, Best Man Fall, mm -hmm. I will like it. I You've think. read Sandman, right? What's that? You've read Sandman, right? I've read the first few issues, maybe the first 10 issues. Oh, you haven't read Sandman? Okay. Because I, I was going to make an analogy to Sandman. My favorite stories from that series, now anyway, are the single issue stories. Actually, I've read some single issues. I've read the Cats one. Mm -hmm. I wish I'm a big Cats fan. I've read the Shakespeare one where he puts on a play. And I read the, obviously like the first nine with my favorite being num everyone's favorite number eight with death. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I'm thinking there's a great issue with Prez, first team president, which might be my favorite issue drawn mm -hmm. by Mike Allred. Mike Allred, yeah. And if you haven't read that, it's totally worth picking up. Um, but that was, that was my point was that from Sandman, like the stories I enjoyed the most were the single issue stories. Mm -hmm. 
they get in told a very specific single story and then moved on. There's a great story actually that takes place in the time of the French Revolution. Mm. That's kind of beautifully eerie and fascinating. And um, it was just completely satisfying by itself. Uh, I, I don't think Morrison, aside from JLA, I don't think Morrison in that era, in this era, was really strong at these at creating these continuing stories to keep you involved. I almost felt like these the the first nine issues, especially, were like too full of stuff he wanted to show us. Well, maybe let's talk about that. What do you consider Grant Morrison's magnum opus? Well, according to him, it would have to be Invisibles, right? But according to Jason, what? Is according it? to me. Uh, no, I have to say I haven't read, uh, uh, well, I haven't read much by him past like Seven Soldiers of Victory. And I actually say Seven Soldiers of Victory is probably his magnum opus because it's reality bending and hero redefining and yeah. full of action and adventure, but also surreal and, and full of cosmic. Uh, yeah, I forgot about that, but that is probably, I mean, I, all-star the stuff that i love is all yeah star. all-star First, superman all yeah superman, but i think seven soldiers shows his craft storytelling um and then people like his justice league but yeah his jla is great actually i reread that all when i was writing my book and uh, it's just sensational superhero stuff mm-hmm. and what's really impressive about that is especially in the 90s like all the dc heroes were going through different transformations right so we had cal replace hal for a while there was a different wonder woman mm-hmm. superman became the energy superman the blue superman and morrison just rolled with the punches and just continued his stories no matter what they threw at him so it's but, like a really remarkable bit of comics mm-hmm. writing because of his like incredible flexibility but do you think he would consider invisibles like is there another self I, I'm assuming he's like he owns the rights to Invisible. So, is there any other things that he would? Well, he did, you know, the the filth and oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, he's got a few series like that that came out through Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was a Sea Guy? Got it. Okay. Rama or whatever that's called. But um, no, in the Doug Wolk book where he has a chapter about Invisibles, uh, Wolk talks about how it's Morrison's. Uh, Morrison feels it's his magnum opus and Doug Wolk also feels like it's Morrison's magnum opus because it's, it's you know, it's this kind of quasi-autobiographical story about Morrison's reactions to, um, he claims, being intentionally abducted by UFOs um, around the, like a year or two before this book was created. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I may have to finish it because I've bought the book, so, and uh and I, but anyways, we can keep uh, kind of getting back to its interest. I think. I know. Do you think it's his magnum opus? This I don't know. I mean, we have only read twelve issues. It's sure. not. According to these twelve issues, it's not. But I think issue number twelve, the last one, is up there with some of the best single issues I've ever read from him. Up That's there with, with the Frank Quietly one, where he did uh, he did the. Um, multiversity one that he did with Frank Quitely, uh, oh. uh, Americana. It's an incredible um, comic. It's up there with, uh, uh, with, I mean, the best series that he's done. As, I mean, All Star Superman is 
those are single issues, by the way. So that's the wonderful thing about it. It's like they're single issues and they're a complete story. And then um, it's also up there with uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory, which is so good. It's so good. So tell me what you liked about these comics. Other than the last few issues, is there other things that you enjoyed about um, them? Um, so the, the parts that I did not, you know, the first nine issues, the parts that I did like uh, for them, um, I think it's similar to The Matrix. So I could, although I don't think The Matrix really stole this from the, at least the first nine issues or first 12 issues really show the Matrixy type thing, other than the fact that it's these rebels. Um, I think he complained about being the Matrix, about the Matrix being kind of based on his work, but yeah, I'm not sure I see it yet. I could see that. Like, I think what I like about him is the attempt for diversity. Mm -hmm. However, I have some problems with it, and I, I will wait till see. I mean, in the 1990s, talking about like a you know a trans superhero, I think that's ahead of its time. But I don't really know enough about that culture to really comment about it, and that, and so I'm. I would probably give away. I need to probably do more studying and probably talk to some folks who are who know more about it than I do to see is this accurate? Is this a good way of representing a trans person? Um, yeah, so and that's that part of what makes me not like Jane either. Is he's got this like hatred, this homophobia. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what the term would be. Transophobia. I think homophobia. I think yeah. He, Homophobic. In this case, I think he, he uses the term that's like homophobic. It could be. Um, I don't really know, but um, but yeah, or transphobic. Um, it makes him feel so unlikable. Yeah, and I, I mean, he's gonna turn, or he's gonna become a good person. So that's one. I think. I think maybe he's his attempt at diversity is good. Like the team is totally diverse. You know, mm. there are more women on the team than men. Um, you know. Um, I think that's probably the best thing so far. I haven't really enjoyed any other stuff. Um, first nine issues. Or yeah, there's a lot of stuff I wanted to see more of. Like when they go to the alternate London and there's the one with the pointy head and the Urizen statue in the middle of the Thames. Like I wanted this to read more of that. So I hope we come back to more of that later in the series. I think yeah. the time travel element is I think cool. Like. Yeah. Like the the uh, the windmill that travels around in time. I think that's a kind of a cool yeah. invention. Actually, the time travel is pretty cool. Yeah, you're. Right. I like the fact that you can go live. You know, travel in time. That's cool. Maybe like a little Doctor Who, but the way they explain it to the sod, or is it the sod Marquise de Sade? Yeah, um, the um, the way I explained to him that uh. You know, here's how your your body will be in the other world, but your soul here, or something like that. You know, that was that was kind of a novel idea to time travel. I also like uh, you could tell Jill Thompson's art is amazing, at, but I think you could also tell the points where she had to hurry up her art. You know, there are yeah. points where like, oh my gosh, this is great, and then you know, there are points where like, oh, what happened to Jill Thompson? Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost not fair to compare it to the guys who did the single issues because they had the time to create them. Yeah. 
and really put them together in the way they wanted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the same time, the stories are better for singles, especially number 12. <laughs> 12, number is, 12 is totally the standout issue to me. Yeah. Because it, it really seems to do everything Morrison wants to do in terms of storytelling, in terms of humanizing the characters. What, what impressed you so much about it? So, okay, let's talk about the good stuff. Then my favorite part of this on the first 12 issues is number 12. For like, obviously, I think the art's really appropriate. It's really cartoony, but it's great storytelling. I like the art. I love the story that it's... Uh, it shows, um, you know, um, the point of view of the foot soldier or the, mm -hmm. you know, I always, there was always this joke about Star Wars. I think Kevin Smith came up with it. was like, you know, what about the guys on Death Star who had families who like, when they blew it up, they die. And then they left kids and wives and, wives and kids. Right. Like, you know, they're trying to get money. So like, it shows a point of view of, a, of a, one of the soldiers that works for the, you know, for the bad guys that the invisibles are trying to destroy. And then at the same time, it shows his life in like the, you know, like Watchmen, you know, comparing it to Watchmen, I think number four, where uh, um, Dr. Manhattan goes to Mars and you see time as one continuous, one thing, like time is not a sequential, but rather happening all at the same time. So you'll see like, you start with him in grade school playing guns, you know, guns and, you know, whatever. And he pretend dies. And then you hop on to him being actually a real war. And then you hop back to when he was a little kid and he's having fun with his parents. Then you hop back to when his brother beat him up. Then when, you know, just like jumping around. And what's so funny, I, I, there are points where like the timeline actually, um, overlap so there's a point where um i forget what the so when he's a little baby like one years old he calls his his parents hear him call the teddy bear like by name or something i forget what the like bulb, i don't know right and so but and they're all like well he's one one year olds aren't supposed to talk it's actually like him calling his teddy bear when he's in bed at like 11 years old or something like that but it's all timeline time always like you know, overlapping each other. And then at this end, it's talking, and then you just see like his whole life and you see his abusive life. His dad is an alcoholic. You see him actually being an abuser himself to his own wife and then having a difficult life of like a developmentally challenged child. It's like all these create, all these like things that are like, that I want to see, like, mm -hmm. you know, like almost slice of life. And then at the end, he gets killed frivolously by this asshole, King Mob, who's part of the Invisibles. Right. At least I can say, I'm joking, but like, basically you see this, this guy with a weird mask, shoot him down and shoot him in the head and he's dead and it's over. That's his life. Yeah, I love like pages 320 and 321 when he's just putting a suit on, going to, 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 to kind of do his job. And he is totally like the stormtroopers on the Death Star. Yeah, you know, he's just some some dude just doing his job and gets cut down because that's his job. Yeah. And he's all like, oh no, what's is this an alarm? Did they shut off the alarm? Like it's supposed to be my on? lunch break. I hope I'm getting overtime for this. 
there was one point where like, I think they talked about needing a, him needing a job and he's all like, well, you know, the only way we can get ex-soldiers like us can get a job is here. No one else is, it's like a private security firm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we might as well do it, you know, pays good. And there's only one person that we need to answer, to, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, it's it's a wonderful issue, like just, you know, and the you know, he's been to war. He has not only did he go through like an alcoholic family, abusive family. He went to war. He had post traumatic disorder, like all these crazy things of like, and then he ends up dying for no reason, at least not to his own, you know, belief, not no. to his own knowledge. You know? He's just some dude doing a job, and then Morrison does such a nice job where he closes out the issue with these kind of three different conclusions right versus this perfect moment with the woman he's going to marry and then we see him get shot yeah and then we have this great kind of ending line there too where you know it's just a game okay do you want a knife grenade or rifle it's asked of him when he's playing with his friends and then try to remember I just think that's such a like such a well done conclusion mm-hmm and that storytelling, the way they reuse the images, the way they, he uses silhouettes and other techniques to really emphasize what's happening. Mm-hmm. Really, it's just outstanding storytelling by Parkhouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also like the issue before this. I know it's a lot weirder and darker, yeah. but the t- it, it felt to me like the tight focus really helped Morrison tell these stories in ways that, that were compelling. Yeah, and good art too. The art's really good. Yeah, Rid- Ridgeway is always a great artist, yeah. But I think like that was good too. Again, like I'm not a big fan of, um, who's that American writer with all these like monsters that British people love? Alan Moore loved, it's, it's part of this issue. Guy Barker? Uh, no, he's older. Basically, this issue about is a kind of a monster that he would write about. Okay. Alan Moore loves them. What's your, do you recommend Invisible's book one? Or do you feel like you need to read more to, to uh, have I a strong I'm, opinion? I think I'm going to read more of it. Probably need to finish this. I, you know, I have all the other trades. But I, did you want to talk about this issue a little bit? Sure, we can talk about it a little more. Um, what did you like about it? I like the focus and I like the autobiographical element to it. And I like the character, our main character in the story kind of evolves as the story goes. You know, we see him go from being this kind of servant type person to kind of falling, feeling like the beast was at least something he could be loyal to mm-hmm. or helpful to. And then really at the end, he sees all his, Kind of hopes are just completely screwed like it's about this person who tries to be uh, a real person you know and he has this connection back with his missing daughter who's the same girl who we saw way back in invisibles 2 also so it's a nice kind of throwback there so the sense just like in issue 12 how there's a throwback in issue 11 there's also the throwback to an earlier issue um so i, I like that we were really seeing this character who would ordinarily be on the side of things become a real person in front of us mm-hmm. and then we see the tragic ends because it's like his own kind of ego that gets in the, in the way really mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, one of the, we didn't talk about this also, but one of the storylines that really bothered me in the earlier issues is that weird uh, sadomasochistic sex party. Yes. The characters have. And, you know, they, they, clo- they lock the door and they, it's all about humiliating the prostitutes and everything. Um, this really gives it, I didn't like it for a few reasons. It's just cruel and bizarre yeah. and, and frustrating yeah. to watch, but also because like, it feels like it kind of comes out of the blue and doesn't that's, seem like it pays that's off. Why, that's why I hated, that's another reason. That's what I was referring to. I didn't even want to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. I didn't like it. Um, yeah. And then this story kind of takes that same kind of idea and actually makes it a lot more understandable and it becomes part of the larger tapestry of the story. So now there's a sense of stuff kind of connecting in a different way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm not sure this is a story I liked because it's so fucking tragic. Mm-hmm. And when that, okay, I can say a spoiler because the comic's 25 years old. When his daughter betrays him, God, it's fucking, it's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. At the same time, like, I just hate those British, the, the, the British upper class twits hunting down poor people. I think it's such yeah. a st- weird, stupid cliche. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, yeah. It, it, it was my second favorite issue of these first 12. Um, I think for the same reasons you mentioned, I think what was interesting about it is that, um, so the, the, the guy, the story is about this guy who feeds meat to this monster that comes out of this other dimension. Um, I'm still trying to figure out that writer uh, that I've never read from, but Alan Moore writes a lot of- Alistair Crowley? No, 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 Nico Mikanon or something, Nico, yeah, anyways. Um, Providence, his new comic is all, all about that guy. It's like an art uh, anyways, so it's that type of a monster. Um, but uh, but anyways, uh, so there's this butler who does who has a job that's kind of like similar to that soldier that we read in 12. Oh, you but, mean you mean HP Lovecraft? HP Lovecraft, exactly. Like it sounds like the British people love HP Lovecraft. And okay. there's another example. That's why I did not like about it. But uh, what I liked about this issue was so the butler that feeds that HP Lovecraftian monster is part of the Invisibles. And for six years, he's been tasked with killing this monster, except he doesn't. He's actually showing compassion to this pure evil. And what's interesting about this issue is that I feel like it's showing that like love and compassion are not necessarily the best thing if you don't have conviction and boundaries around it. So he actually found this love and compassion for this beast that's like, you know, just a disgusting beast, you know, just most evil thing. Um, And then there's a point, and again, this is not an original idea for me, but uh, the part about the compassion, you know, uh, obviously, no, no ideas are, but um, I heard that one. But the one thing that I, I really, it's uh, kind of, I'm going to step back and say on Facebook, I saw this meme of like some guy who's like anti-establishment or anti like one per top 1%. And they had like a meme of like, saying like, oh, this rich guy would, would have you die 
if he can make more money. And then it shows like the people who worship rich people like Elon Musk and those guys say like, mm -hmm. yeah, well, we love him. He's so great because they always feel like they like him. Oh, well, well, he likes me because he smiled at me. So there's a point in this story where like the character is like, yeah, that beast looked at me and and we saw, we had this agreement. I think he likes me. I think he likes me. He's like this, you know, it's like the kind of people who betray their own people because they're almost like worship at the altar of their abusers or as the yeah. kind of a thing. And I think for six years, this guy does it. And then the one time that he wants to kind of, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't have the guts to kill him because he's like, well, you know, there's that compassion. There's that misguided compassion towards the abuser. And so when his when he finds that that his daughter is part of the meat that's going to be fed to the monster, he's like, well, I'm going to try to save her. And at the end, he ends up being killed by the monster and in fact being fed to the monster after right. his own daughter betrays him. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's basically like it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter if uh, you like him or not. You had, yeah, great. It's great. You had compassion for this pure evil, but the pure evil just thinks of you as food, you know? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. in the end, Sutton's just pathetic. Yeah. You know, as of everything pathetic. else, you know, he's, he's just a tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we will destroy everything you have ever cared about, and then we will annihilate you. A starring role in your own personal tragedy, eh? Mm -hmm. And it's it's a basically, I think he might have been uh, referenced early on in some of the issues. They're like, oh no, he's he wouldn't betray us. He's a good guy. Maybe it was another invisibles, but invisible person. But um, so like the contrast between issue eleven and twelve. It's pretty amazing because one, you have this, I forget, what's the butler's name again? The guy? Sutton. Sutton. You have Sutton here who has compassion for the pure evil, like the source of the evil. I think it's pure evil or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, and doesn't kill it. And then he ends up dying and ends up kind of like putting invisible as a jeopardy or like the world or whatever. Then you have King Mob here, which you don't see any background. Like if you were just to read issue 12, you would think that the bad guy is King Mob. Right. King Mob has no regard for anyone who's on the other side. So he actually kills this guy who probably who has a family. He doesn't know who they are. He just kills them because he knows that he works for the wrong side. So if you really think about like uh, Nazi Germany, let's say if Nazis occupied your land and you're just nice to them, you're like, well, you know, they're people, you know, like. And then while you see like your fellow people get executed and that kind of thing. And then you have the other side where like, I don't care if this is a human being, they're still committing atrocities. I'm going right. to try to get rid of the atrocity for the better good of the world, you know, that kind of thing. So, so there is that. There's why like Morrison, there's how Morrison's redeeming himself and redeeming the invisibles for that matter, because I didn't really have too much compassion for people who like Marquise de Sade and who throw Molotov cocktails into schools. And so you want to say anything yeah. else about the Marquis de Sade? You talked about that at the beginning of our call. Not really. I don't really know much about him, but I do know that I, the little I know about him is pretty disgusting. So I wouldn't make him a hero, but. Yeah, there was a debate on Goodreads of all places about using Marquis de Sade as a character here. Mm -hmm. 
one of the critics was saying, you know, I just have trouble even understanding why he would choose this character mm-hmm. because he's such a horrible, repulsive, terrible character. And even the, and, you know, be over above and beyond the things that Morrison shows as being praiseworthy about the Marquis or positive elements of the Marquis, you know, he's just a, just a wretched, terrible person. And others yeah. were saying, well, no, you're limiting yourself. Morrison's choosing this character for his specific symbolic meaning, as opposed to being this fully fledged person i'm not sure how i fall on that i feel like somebody probably more well read no insult no disrespect to morrison uh, i think would have probably chosen a better example than marquis to say there's so many great examples that don't live in europe you could have found something in the middle east or in asia or yeah this is a european thing but yeah anyway Uh, but yeah i think overall you know, I'm going to keep going because I already paid for the books. Um, and also I, the last two issues are very redeeming, both from the art and writing sense. Yeah, I agree with that last bit, especially. Glad we read these. Uh, I, I think I mostly enjoyed them. I am I'm definitely intrigued like you are. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Amir. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Oh, thank you.